You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Good afternoon. You're on the Renegade Economist. Uh, my name is Raina Fahey and I am your host for today's special International Women's Day 2017 show. It's very good to be back on air. Some of you may remember my voice from many years ago when I used to come and help co-host with Carl. Uh, he has kindly stepped out of the interview seat uh, for this special show today. And joining me is Juanita McLaren who is a local anti-poverty activist and master's student at Victoria University. Juanita is a single mother of three and works on issues surrounding the feminisation of poverty. Currently, she is doing a research placement at The Good Shepherd, researching single mothers on JobActive, the government's welfare-to-work programme. Good afternoon, Juanita. Good afternoon, Raina. How are you going? I'm going good. Great. We're currently sitting around our kitchen table chatting away with cups of tea, listening to the chickens, and it is a lovely sunny day. Um, so we are going to get straight into it. Uh, so my first question to you, Juanita, uh, your work focuses on the experience women have within the Centrelink system, in particular single mothers. We've just seen yet another round of single mother stereotype bashing through the media, Of course, defining a woman's worth based on their desirability to men, not, Mm. oh, I don't know, their value as human beings in their own right. Mm. In your work, you talk about the actual costs of raising children and how our system has no accurate method of calculating that. Can you elaborate and explain how that lack of true value accounting is framing our social perceptions of single mothers and their worth? Okay, right. It's very complicated. To start with, none of the systems, child support or Centrelink, actually have a current value of raising a child. So, for example, when you're applying for child support and you need to put in your your expenses, there is nothing that actually covers how much it costs to raise a child. So, you put in your electricity, your rent, your food costs. What it doesn't actually allow you to do is put in the things that you're not spending money on because there simply isn't enough money. For example? For example, soccer or getting your kids new shoes instead of going to savers or um, dental bills that you can't afford to do or getting your vacuum cleaner fixed because it's been busted for three months and you're borrowing your friends. Um, Those sorts of things that we can't pay for because we simply don't have the money to pay for them. So in doing that, it actually shows that we don't have enough money to perform this function in society that allows us to throw money around willy-nilly. So what's happened is people think that we, we don't have a very good idea of how to save money or how to spend money or how to budget with money. Recently, a study was done actually by Good Shepherd, by Tanya Corey, that actually shows that women are very, very good at budgeting with money. They're very, very good at allocating their money. There is just not enough of it. So where we have these old-fashioned ideas that women are loose and they don't care about 
who they sleep with or what they do with their time and we just want to have children to get money free from the government, um, that's coming through when the truth is there is actually just not enough money being given to us to be able to provide all of these things. So when our children are missing out and walking around in scrappy clothes, it's a reflection upon the mother and the mother is judged rather than the fact that she simply just doesn't have enough money to survive. So these latest changes that, are, well, they're not the latest, they've been around for four years or so. Um, when your youngest ter child turns eight and you need to go back out to work at least 15 hours a week, your income support drops by about $100 a fortnight, between $58 and $100 a fortnight. Which begs the question, why is it from the age of eight does a, a child suddenly not cost anything? Do they, do they just stop eating? They stop they eating, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they stop eating and they stop needing anything and they're suddenly able to get themselves to school and suddenly able to do all the things. Child support doesn't cost anything. They stop growing. That's one of the biggest <laughs> things. So they don't need shoes every three months every, anymore. So that's... Something that's been reflected in the in the child support system, they've said that I spoke to a child support la lady recently. Um, it hasn't been done for them since about two thousand and eight, where they been done? A, a study on how much it actually costs children. So we're now in two thousand and seventeen. Uh, so that's nine years since they've actually looked at the cost of children. So in the last maybe five years, even in government schools. Children need a laptop to walk in the front door. That's mm -hmm. $500 up front. You get allowances for school uniforms from the government but not the entirety of it. You don't get money for the school books. So, And then there's excursions, excursions and everything the on, top, on top. Which you can get away with. You can get a, a payment plan. But that initial $1,000 to walk in the front door, for some people that's one and a half, two weeks of their welfare payments in one go. Mm. Uh, which doesn't come into the, which doesn't come into the cost. It's absolutely crazy, really. Yeah, because they they calculate your Centrelink amounts based yes. on how much it costs you on a weekly basis. Yes, but that is just the weekly costs. Yeah, that doesn't include the out of out any of the ordinary costs. Yeah. Any incidental does not come into it. I I had a moment if I can use an anecdote. About three months ago and I was at the absolute end of my financial resources and I rang Centrelink and said, look, I'm not going to be able to pay rent in three weeks' time when my rent's due. I've forecasted bills that are going out, expenses that are going out. I'm going to be about $400 short. Can you help me with that? They said, we can pay you early. And I said, yeah, but the other, those other things are still going to be there. Well, then we can't. Okay, so I said, can you tell me who can help me with these things? Oh, no. Could you ask your parents? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's actually nowhere for us to go to. You can go to St Vinnie's and places like that, but more often than not, you're not actually guided to these things. The onus is on us to be able to find those public services. In the end, I had to borrow from a number of people to get across the line. And it wasn't because I was going out and having wild parties or anything. It was just I was living on a budget of $10 a day. So do you know where this eight-year-old 
magical child no. cost drop came from? Is there it, actually any evidence behind this policy? There is a senator who came up with it and I can't remember his name. I'll have to get onto it and we can pop it on the website because we can all write and thank him. <laughs> he takes great pride in the fact that it was his idea. He just thought it was a wonderful idea to get people back out working because as we were saying before, women are seen as unemployed workers before they're seen as parents. So even though the money we receive on welfare to work, for example, goes straight back into the economy, we're not saving it up for trips to Hawaii or anything. Investment properties? Straight, no, oh, look, I've, no. <laughs> <laughs> the best we can do is walk past the for sale signs before we get ushered away um, for being scruffy. So the eight-year-old policy comes from a senator whose name I can't remember, but he just came up with it one day. He thought, this is a great idea. So you have to pay someone else to look to pay, after your yeah, child exactly. while you're at work. Exactly. And you have to probably have a part-time job because the flexibility is just not yes. there in the full-time industry. Yes. yes, which then means that you're missing out on superannuation, you're missing out on full-time pay, which means you are then experiencing social isolation, you're not saving any money, you require more flexibility at work, which makes you vulnerable at the end of the day because most organisations have this, yes, we're family-friendly thing, but they're, they're actually watching how many times you had to leave early because Junior got nits or Junior's got a stomach bug or Junior's got this. Uh, I had to take three weeks off in a row once uh, when my children tag-teamed in a flu and... I then got very sick as a result. So that was four weeks off work that I had to take because there's no one else to do it. That meant I was, I'd run out of all my holiday pay, all my sick pay, completely vulnerable to anything they asked me to do because I couldn't afford to lose the job. And it happens all the time. It really does happen a lot. And just to just to clarify, you're mm. a university educated highly professional woman yes. and, yes. and uh, able to get you know reasonably high paying jobs yes so, so if this is happening to someone in your situation imagine what it's like for someone who hasn't finished high school has you know some kind of minor TAFE certification yeah. and is working in a very low income and this skills based position this is the main part of my study was to be able to get people to have a voice when these sorts of issues aren't being discussed and even with the study, um, which hasn't been published yet, but the access that we had to women was through the Council for Single Mothers and Their Children, which looking at that, they're women who are already, already technically savvy, they're onto the system, they, they know where to go to get support and stuff like that. So even though we were able to interview them and find some really great new themes and confirm some other ones, there are still women who might not have the language might not have the family support, might not have literacy even, or the confidence if they've been in suffering in a family of domestic violence and they've completely lost their voice and their self-agency. How are these people going to go into a workplace and stand up and say, well, 
this is what I can do for you. I'll need to do it in my own time though. I have complete faith in my abilities. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I'm I'm interested about what you just said about uh, how you know Centrelink want you to go and and get more work when your your child turns eight. Um, therefore, obviously valuing the work of a, a childcare worker higher than than your own ability to do it yourself. Yes. There's a tension within feminism regarding the perception and value of the housewife slash stay at home mum. I'd be interested in your thoughts as to how we can overcome the judgments inherent in these conversations if the contribution to this labour was adequately rewarded. Oh, look, I I don't see how we're going to do it as long as our childcare workers are some of the lowest paid people in the community. So they're playing mothers or stay-at-home parents because I, I don't mean to discount the work of single dads out there but there are definitely we love single dads we love single dads we love we love men don't we actually we just love men we yeah. love it yeah but there are certain gender specific things that come into play here when you know women are the ones who have to take time out to grow the baby and produce the baby and feed them if that's what they choose to do but as long as you've got the people who are taking over that role such as childcare workers, even aged care workers who are doing the role that women have historically done and you're paying them less than you pay most other jobs. As long as there is that disregard for caring, it's, n- it's not going to change. I, don't, I can't see it changing. When people are having to stand up and, and protest the amount of, what, what is it, $18 an hour sometimes, for childcare workers or even $24 an hour. So your most precious gift that you've ever given your children or whether you, whether we give them or not is up for people's interpretation. But the most precious thing that we create, we are prepared to pay the least amount for someone to care for that child. Do you know what I'm saying? It's because it's, I think there's a, a really interesting disconnect between the state's value, dependence on women as creators of the future workforce. Total disregard compared for that. to the actual value that we have. So we, you know, we know that if women stopped having children, let's imagine this for a second. Yeah. Let's say women just said, you know what, we're over this. You're mm. just not acknowledging the work that we're doing. This, you know, you can't do it. So we're not having yes. babies anymore. The economy would collapse It'd be completely like the, within 20 years. Like what they did with the immigrants stopping work in America. If immigrants stop work, everything would fall on its ass. Well, yes, that would happen here because people would not be fed and people <laughs> would not be made. <laughs> there would be no more people. Who would make your burgers? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Um, we, we we wouldn't have any any young people in, in cafes to exploit if we if there wasn't any young people. So our economy relies on a continuation of labour coming into the into the workforce. We've got an, a, a massive population boom about to retire or beginning to retire now, and the superannuation bill of the baby boomer generation mm. itself is enormous. Mm. So as a society we have to have people continuing to make babies absolutely so uh it's interesting that we talk about the value of stay-at-home mums when international women's day was first um seated as a prospect it was in the international year of the woman in 1975 and the whole world 
the whole white world, the whole, <laughs> the whole world got together and said, hey, this is really crap. The way that we're treating women, we need to have equal opportunity in our society to, to thrive and survive. Uh, which is an inc incredibly important idea. Um, and we can certainly say there's been progress since 1975. I mean, I personally wasn't around in 1975. I personally was. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, when I grew up in primary school, girls can do anything mm. was, was drummed into me. And uh, my family supported everything that I mm. wanted to do. And I, I literally had the belief that there was no barriers. If I wanted to be the first woman, whatever, mm. into doing something, I would be able to do that. Mm. Uh, certainly, I did aim to be the first woman Prime Minister of New Zealand and <laughs> Arnie Hallen beat me to it. And I must say, I'm still very disappointed that she's, she's not hitting... She's a worthy adversary. She though. is a worthy adversary and she should be hitting the UN because she would... If Arnie <laughs> Hallen was in charge, the world would be a different place. Not... Uh, regarding her position on Indigenous rights. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, but the, so the barriers that we face today as and particularly our daughters are facing today are not those of overt discrimination. It's more that sort of insidious, systemic it is stuff. systemic. Yeah, we, you know, you face the, what we just discussed, mm. the perception of, of value of particular mm. uh, industries. And certainly if you go and look in, in different cultures, it doesn't matter what the industry, if women dominate in it, then it will be, it would be valued less. The, um, a very classic example is in, um, I don't know what the current state is today, but in the 80s in Russia, uh, doctors were predominantly women and they were paid very low. Really? I did not um, know that. Whereas here, doctors are predominantly men and they're paid very high mm. and we see them as a very trustworthy, a, a very important role. Even though they're, it's a care-based role and it requires a level of expertise, mm. compare that to, say, nurses a care-based role which requires a high level of oh, expertise. God. And nurses certainly keep the hospitals running. Yeah. Um, and the administrators. Don't forget the administrators. and midwives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the, the, the comparison between <laughs> yeah. those two industries, cannot uh, those two occupations, has to come back to gender. And it's our perception of what the value of that contribution is. Can I just point yes, out yeah. what you were saying about growing up and being told you could do anything you wanted to do, be whatever you wanted to be. I grew up in that time as well, born in 1973 and all through high school and everything, we could be whatever we wanted to be. I actually haven't found until I became a single mum and became a part of a system where my gender started to play against me. Before that, I went to uni, I was a the breadwinner in my family, I had a stay-at-home husband, I could do pretty much whatever I wanted. There was nothing that stopped me. It wasn't until I started asking for help financially and going into a system where I really came across, as you say, these insidious systemic policies that we have that I came across so many barriers and so many blockages to be able to continue doing and being what I wanted. That's what's so frustrating about the, the younger woman who go, I don't need feminism anymore. <laughs> My life's just fine. I don't know what you're worried about. Yeah, yeah. well, wait until you're a single yeah. mum of three and you want to, you know, maintain a career so that you have superannuation and so that you don't become homeless when you're old 
when you're a senior citizen and you want to show that you show your children that you are an individual and to respect women, especially me having three boys, I need my children to see that I am smart, contributing, I'm just I'm I'm equal as far as a human goes. And I need to be showing them that while every decision I make is about them, that I have a life too and I I'm going to work hard to get where I want to be. Um, and that's that's become something that has been increasingly problematic since I've been a single mum. And I my value is as my value, well, there is no value placed on the work that I do. No value whatsoever on the work that I do for my children sitting up at night at nine o'clock talking about emotional issues or whatever, planning forward for, you know, the social isolation that they experience because not much money in the house. How can I try and rectify that? Those sorts of things. There is absolutely no value to it. So that's my message to you young, savvy young women with your careers. I was you once. Uh, no. <laughs> And I'm still happy. 90% of my day has nothing to do with money. Really, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm speaking up for people. I'm chasing my dreams. But it's when you ask for financial help, that's when the burden comes in. And, and the judgment. I, and, yeah, where I have to prove to people that I'm contributing. You're doing an amazing job, I have to oh, say. Cheers. 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 <laughs> uh, so... International Women's Day, yeah. um, going back to that, what I'm interested in, in hearing is your thoughts about the women who were already in education or the workforce or at home prior to 1976. How are those mm. women faring 41 years on? Oh, look, I think they're having a bit of trouble now, especially since the marriage laws changed in the 70s to become a no-blame policy. So before that you had to prove that someone had done something wrong within the marriage. Um, so then, you know, we have a lo loads of divorces happening after that where these women straight away, I don't think they had access to the superannuation or anything like anything like that. Uh, money, receiving money as a part of a settlement took a while to sort of jig itself into the new state. So a lot of these women who had come out of school, got married, had kids, been stay-at-home mothers or had a career as carers, um, as they've gotten older, there's been no backup for them. Uh, I know my mother herself, you know, she was a single mum of two in the 70s and my dad didn't have to give her child support unless she chased after it. Um, but with what money? Uh, she didn't have any. She was very young. Uh, and then she remarried, had another child. So essentially she was for 27 years while her kids were at school was doing temp work or having babies. Uh, it wasn't until it took probably another 12 years after my younger brother left high school for her to land a permanent job. Uh, she's in her 60s now and will need to work for at least another 10 years because she doesn't have enough money in her superannuation to survive. And I think that's a very common thread. Um, also women who have left domestic violence 
um, after many, many years, uh, there's no financial backup. And it can be very scary if you mm. if you know that you're in a, a situation where you're uh, you're not safe, uh, but you have to make that economic decision as to whether you're going to be able to survive if you leave. Because certainly we're seeing uh, uh, that the the safety net under older women is is very very thin, mm. uh, and it can be a very short drop from uh, you know having a a, a part time job and a unsafe family environment to you're by yourself and you're homeless and you've got a, a tiny little piece of support coming from the government. No, the ability for older women to get in, back into the workforce, particularly if they have uh, a very thin uh, you know, job CV, mm. uh, they're only going to have access to very low-paid yeah. uh, positions well, there's a, there's with, you know, yeah, without the safety net of uh, you know, uh, very good workplace protections. Basically, we're one step away from poverty at all times because we don't have a buffer for any incidental costs other than food and our bills. Um, and that's what older women are facing. And also housing. Housing is a big issue because there's no affordable housing for a single independent woman. Um, nursing homes cost an absolute bomb and I saw this study by the Tenants Association. The number of affordable houses for single women in Melbourne has gone from 72 suburbs about 10 years ago to 28 suburbs now of affordable houses for single women in this, in this city. And the chances of being able to get one of those are extremely oh. low because you're setting yourself up in what I like to call the privilege shuffle. Yes. So you, you sit at these in, these rental inspections and you've got to suss out all the other different types of people. Absolutely. And go, oh, I wonder if I'm going to win the privilege game this time because it just all comes down to the judgment of the the landlord or yeah. p potentially the agent depending on how how pushy and bossy the agents are because that's becoming an increasing problem within the rental they market. And they don't actually help at all. They say, let us let us help you find your rental property and it's not I've, – I've not seen it. Can I give an example of yes. the house hunt that I'm on at the moment? So Please. I've been given notice. My owner wants to move back. So on paper, I'm a single mother, full-time student, uh, unemployed – um, with three, with with three, three boys. rambunctious sons. Three rambunctious sons, 12 and under. So on paper, I look not very financially viable. They don't actually care that I've had a previous career and that I'm extremely resourceful and that I come up with the money because you just have to. And I went to a rental property the other day in a suburb that I want to go to where my kids go to school. And there are 20 of us. 20 applicants, not there are more than 20 people, but 20 applicants walked past the woman and said, yep, I'll apply, I'm applying. And out of this group of us, there were three single mums, there were a couple of young Indian families, a couple of young African families, and three or four share house groups of youths who, you know, hipster types with woolly jumpers and really badly coordinated outfits uh, on purpose and they all seemed like musicians or something. So we all put it in our thing. I know I put through everything at them. I offered money, you know, two months in advance, all the rest, references galore. I put in an application as did everyone. 
this Saturday just gone by, the house is, was open for inspection again. So out of everyone who applied for that house, none of us were suitable. And I remember standing there going, God, which one of us is going to be at the top of the discrimination pile? Because we were all minority groups or not so much minority groups but outer groups that um, it all came down to our finances. You weren't a two-income household. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So um, it's quite dire and I know there are a lot of – in the area that I need to live, there probably one house comes up a week in my, in my price range and, uh, you know, until I get a job that shows that I'm, I've – got a certain price range that I can go and people say move out why don't you move to another suburb well the money I save from that will then be spent on getting my children to school uh, because I'm not changing schools because that's where my support network is that's where my children are happy they live you know they go to visit their dad every second weekend it's very important to them to have that safe place so I'm not changing that and the expense of moving out of my community is going to be far greater than, you know, paying a little bit extra to live within it. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, position when people can just happily dismiss any issues just by mm. saying, oh, well, you just need to change something about you. It's like, mm. no, no, let's not question what's actually going on here. Mm. Let's not question the power structures. Let's not, you know, I don't know give up some of our comfort yeah. in order to include everybody in our community. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, you just, just go somewhere else, would you? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> just, because it's some sort of ugliness. Your problem is just a little bit inconvenient yeah. for my life right now, so can you just, just go away? I was, I was <laughs> suggest, I had it suggested to me by a doctor to go and live in another town where my ex-husband and his new partner live so I can get more support from him. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, are you for real? You want me to leave everyone who supports me to go and live in the same town as the man I'm not married to anymore so that he can help me with the kids. You, you know, there's this real disconnect mm. with reality and and I think it's policy but it's also this um, filtering through of very old-fashioned ideas. Absolutely, that you should just change your life and that it's very easy to do. Just, you know, just move. Yeah. Just and pack goes, up your house. Yeah, and <laughs> it goes back to that sacrificial idea that people have because women are generally seen as nurturers and carers that we're the ones to give up everything. Hmm. Um, what they're not considering is that, especially if you're a single mother, you're not just giving up stuff for yourself, you're giving up opportunities for your children you're sacrificing social opportunities or learning opportunities by being the one who has to make that shift. I really think there's a strong argument for universal basic income, but that's another conversation. Well, we might have to take that up uh, next International Women's Day. Yes. <laughs> so um, just to finish up here because we have gone over time oh. and um, sorry, Carl. Who has sorry, to- Carl, but you knew we would. <laughs> <laughs> um it's International Women's Day. We should be thinking about what sort of actions we need to be taking within our own communities. And one of the th- strong themes that has come up is is actually the the policymakers and their perceptions of what the realities are for uh, for single mothers. Mm. Is there uh, anything in particular that you think that we should be writing to our MPs about when the, the when these conversations come mm. up? I think 
MPs need to be hearing real life stories. If you look at um, our Premier's recent change on euthanasia based on his own father's experiences where he was against he was against euthanasia, then his father and was then very unwell, yep. unwell and then it happened to him. I think because most of our politicians have absolutely no clue what's really happening, they have preconceived ideas that perhaps people are sitting around going, oh, look at all this free money, let us stuff our cushions with it. <laughs> they really have no idea what's going on and it's the stories that make remove the otherness and make people real to our politicians. So tell them your stories. Share your stories through your artwork. Do Share the stories. That's what connects human beings, I think. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. And those of us who are lucky enough to be in, in balanced, stable relationships, share the stories of your friends because more often than not, our single mother friends are working their butts off and don't have time to sit down and I don't know just write a lengthy submission to a member of parliament you know whilst you're not doing anything else whilst you're picking the nits out of your kids hair just sit down and write a submission (laughs) would you um so you know it's it's important for us to challenge those stereotypes when we come across them you know around the dinner table when you're at the family Christmas family Christmas great place to challenge stereotypes (laughs) But we've just got to be loud. It's, it's actually just not acceptable that we are basing all of the social policy based on this crazy stereotype. Of what a, archaic stereotype of what a single mother is. She is young. She is uneducated. She is choosing to put herself in a situation where she's unsupported and, and raising, raising children. Of, of course, there are situations yep. where that exists, but that is by far and away not the reality for the yeah. majority of single mums. And even if that was, we should be supporting those women and holding them up, not mm. putting them down and judging their experiences that have got them in that place. And, and their experiences are not decisions made purely by themselves. There is always another person that has been involved in those decision-making processes mm-hmm. and they should be held accountable as much. If we're going to be holding people to account, mm. <laughs> let's hold hold the the other part of the the uh, relationship to account as well. As Judge Judy says, "You made a baby, you pay for it." <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Mr. <laughs> Treasurer. Can you can you listen to that one? All right. Well, we have to wind up as much as we'd love to go on for hours and hours. Juanita, it's been an absolute delight. Hey, thanks, Raina. And I love looking at you across the table. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll hopefully continue this conversation again next year. I'd love to. Okay, bye. Bye.